Welcome to the launch edition of the second season of the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast. I'm Andrew Beard of Memoria Bond, and today's guest is none other than Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an international speaker and best-selling author who combines his practical and academic background within sport, organisational development and change psychology to help organisations and teams to create a high-performing culture. He is the author of eight best-selling business books, including Liquid Thinking, Liquid Leadership, How to Change Absolutely Anything, How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson, and The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset. He is the co-host of the High Performance Podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sport, and the arts, exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. His innovative and exciting approach has been praised by Sir Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, Sir Terry Leahy, Sir Roger Bannister, Tiger Woods, Johnny Wilkinson, and Sir Alex Ferguson. Aside from all of this, he is an incredibly kind and inspirational person who generously took time out of his busy schedule to take part in the podcast. So much time, in fact, we need to bring it to you in two parts. So in part one, you'll learn about Damien's own progression journey, the clues behind his success, and even how he nearly took himself to the point of breakdown through, in his own words, his desire to achieve more. And in part two, you'll learn about how we can progress lives in a high-performance culture. So with so much to hear about, we had better get started. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere with Professor Damien Hughes. So I did want to look quickly with you at how we can progress lives through building a high-performance culture, specifically within business. So when we talk about high-performing cultures, I think that can be an unhelpful term to give to people because culture on its own, if you go and ask a dozen people, what does culture mean to you? I guarantee you'll get a dozen different definitions that come back because it's an abstract word and our brains don't do abstractions. We have to fill it in and come up with metaphors or examples that speak to us from our own history. What's more helpful is research that was done by two guys called Baron and Hammond, Stanford uh, University professors back in the early 1990s that went into Silicon Valley to go and study whether culture could be a competitive advantage. And what they found is there was five types of culture. And I think when you explain types of culture to people, it frames a very different conversation. So the five types of culture that we talk about is, first type of culture you can get is a star model of a culture. So a star model is basically where you go out to get the best talent you can, you pay them the highest salaries you can afford, you give them the best facilities you can, and then the idea is you stand back and wait for all that talent to come together and deliver spectacular results. Now in our society, we get blinded by the rare occasions where that works, like Google, for example. But what it blinds us to is that it's far more frequent, all that talent in the room will come together and the failure will be spectacular. So when I did uh, some research once on booking up football clubs in Europe, the obvious example of a star culture is Real Madrid. And I interviewed a guy called Diego Lopez, who was a coach there, and he had a great throwaway line that summed up the flaw of a star culture. He said, the trouble is everyone wants to be the head waiter, but nobody wants to wash the dishes. So it's that idea that, there's often a huge discrepancy 
among people yeah. that do roles and the levels of respect, which is the former star model. The second type of culture is an autocracy, which is basically you know, it's my way or the highway. So it'll often be a founder or a charismatic chief exec sets the tone and everyone has to get on the bus or get off it. And it's very black and white. The trouble with a culture like that is what happens when your autocrat goes rogue or starts making bad decisions? You drag everybody else down with it. The third type of culture you get is a bureaucracy. And this is a culture where middle managers rule the roost. So it's about policies, procedures, rules, regulations. When a decision has to be made, we do it by a committee and we try to reach a consensus. Now, the flaw with a model like that is it's not agile. It's slow. It's deliberate. It takes ages for things to happen. The fourth type of culture is an engineering model. Now, despite the name, it's not about engineering, but it's about skills. So when people are brought into an organization based on the fact that they're technically brilliant at a certain set of skills, so if you're recruiting people that have got a deep knowledge in a narrow domain, you're hoping that somebody has got the big picture of the jigsaw that they're looking at. Because what can happen if you don't is you get silos, you get people building their own little thiefdoms, knowledge sharing isn't so easily done. It can often feel like a series of individual compartments to it. So when you use the phrase high-performing culture, that's often used as a shorthand for the academic references, a commitment culture. And a okay. commitment culture has got a really clear sense of purpose and a really clear yeah. set of behaviours. Now, what all the evidence says is from these guys at Silicon Valley that did this study, Baron and Hannah, commitment cultures almost never fail. So in their 20-year study of this, what they found is all five of them work, but the one that gives you the best guarantee of sustained success is a commitment culture. When we talk about success, I'm talking about speed to market, market share, profitability, employee retention, turnover, all of those factors, commitment cultures outperform the others by, on average, about 22%, as I said. There's another study by a guy, a neuroscientist called Paul Zak, that said people stay loyal to commitment cultures even when they're offered pay rises of around 36% to go somewhere else. So the nice way I sometimes frame it is a commitment culture is that intersection where doing good and being good meet in the middle. But what it really does is commitment cultures are really powerful because they drive two things. First of all, there's a transparency. You're signing up to a transparent culture. You know what you're signing up to. And then having the behaviours in place allows you to drive for consistency, which goes back to that point earlier. High performance is about consistently doing the right thing day after day after day. When we talk about it, that this is a big area that I know that uh, Amoria Bond, that's a big part in terms of that you're able to articulate the sense of purpose, which is about progressing lives and behaviours are very clear yeah. and defined as values. And it's no coincidence. That's why you're a successful organisation, because this is the hardest one to nail. But when you get it right, the rewards are so rich and fulfilling for, uh, from it. That's absolutely just demystified, hasn't it? It's a really demystified framework. If you want a high performance culture in business, start with those two pillars. And like you said, you mentioned some of the other key metrics that, that come, come in underneath it, but it's a really simple framework to work within. Well, where I find it's really helpful is because you can then sometimes view decision-making through different lenses. So for example, when I work with sports teams and they might sometimes turn a blind eye to some of their better players behaving, in a dysfunctional way. And when you go, 
So you're now advocating a star culture because your best players can do things that other players you've cracked down harder on. They go, oh, no, we don't want that. So therefore, you need to have the difficult conversation with your better players that you would have because that's the consistency and the transparency being applied. Or sometimes you might get a leader go, just do it. And you go, that's autocratic. And you're starting to muddy the waters of the culture we have here. And I suppose I often say to leaders is, I talk about the diary and the wallet test. Yeah. So I say, how much time and how much money are you investing in role modeling these behaviors? Because if you're not doing it, people don't follow hypocrites. People are not going to follow you. But if you want to just do what you want, that's fine. But accept that you're going to have an autocratic culture where people see that you do it, but you expect everyone to uphold a different standard. And for most of the time, you'll get away with it. But there'll be a period where you're in crisis and you say to people, just trust me. And that's the moment where that cultural albatross of just doing what you wanted is going to end up hanging heavy around your neck. On the subject of the Darwin Wallet says, it's a really interesting concept. How would I go about performing that then if I'm a business leader? Because I think it's a key part that a business leader, a key role a business leader plays in, in the high performance culture. So how, how would you advise me to go about doing my diary and wallet test? First of all, have a look at have a look at your diary and see where does culture and these factors that make up your culture, how high do they come on your agenda? So if you're relegating this topic to the any other business part of an agenda, or if you're thinking that having a once a year conference where you allude to this is going to work, it's nowhere on your agenda. You're wasting your time and everybody else's for it. So when you have these clear behaviours, for example, that should determine who gets promoted, who gets recruited, who gets rewarded, and who gets exited from your business based on the behaviours, not on the talent. Because if you're doing on talent, you've got a star culture or you've got an engineering culture. It should be at the front and centre of pretty much every decision that you make. And then equally in terms of how much budget do you allocate to this topic? Or is it one of those things that you just talk a good game? Do you just laminate your values and stick them up in the reception area of your business? Or is it something that you live that you're rewarding people on it? So give me a really simple example. I'm working with a with a team at the moment, and every Friday, the head coach, when he has a debrief of the session, they're not talking about whether they won the game, they're not talking about whether they lost the game at this stage. They're talking about did we show up and behave in the way that we said we would? Because they've done the analysis that said, if we do that, we'll win more. There's a lovely phrase that I sometimes use. It came from an interview I did with a man called Cheeky Bagirastein, who was the director of football at Barcelona. And he said, your talent will get you into the dressing room. Your behaviour will decide if we keep you within that room. If you're confident that the people in your organisation have got the talent to do the job, and you should be, because that's why you offer them the job. After that is, how are they behaving? How are they showing up? And therefore, the decision, that's where culture then should be front and centre, as opposed to a peripheral part of a conversation. Clearly, to... Uh, ensure that these behaviours are being upheld. That takes discipline from the leader in particular to to stand by them and, and you know not accept compromise. You're right. So what most leaders do is it's easy to sort of say, for example, trust is one of our values, right? Well, who's arguing for the opposite of trust, of being duplicitous? Nobody. So trust on its own doesn't mean a great deal, does it? It's, it's like it's bland wallpaper. I don't know. 
what is that value in action? So how are you going to behave that shows me I can trust you? I remember a really simple example a few years ago that I, I, did, I went into one organisation that was telling me that they valued all their staff. And when I was uh, at the reception area of this particular investment bank, I spoke to, as I was signing in, it was all about how much they valued their staff. So they presented me with a Montblanc pen to sign in the visitor's book. And it was all about wealth and privilege and things like that. And when I was talking to the receptionist, we were just exchanging greetings. She said, how are you? I said, I'm good, thank you. How are you? And her follow-up was, I'll soon knock that out here when you're getting in. You could stop for a moment and go, that's just a nice little exchange. It's a bit of a laugh, which it was, right? So there was no, at that stage, but I was aware of it thinking, that's an interesting response. So a bit later on, when I met the bosses of this organization, I thought, I want to test this for myself. So I said, I was having a conversation with the lady on the desk. I was what was a name? Nobody knew it. Mm. Nobody knew a name. It took four different, what's she called? What's the girl on the desk called? Before anyone could come back and tell me a name. Now, when I made my own inquiries, what it revealed is this, this particular individual had been working as a temporary employee at this organization on the front line for six months and nobody knew what she was called. So what does that tell you about the culture of the organization? Well, the answer was, if you're not worth anything, you're not worth anything. So they had a hierarchy in there where if they regarded you as the bottom of the hierarchy, they didn't even give you the benefit of taking the trouble to learn your name. Now, does that tell you an awful lot about the culture? Well, definitely it was a reveal of it. It was all sort of fur coat and no knickers. Yeah. The great it presented you with a long pen to show you that you can sign in the book, but on the simple acts of kindness towards members of their staff, not doing it. And in my exchange, what I thought was initially a bit of fun was actually a window to the culture from people within the organization. So all of these things find a way of manifesting themselves, which is yeah. why as a leader, if you're relegating it to the any other business part of your agenda, you're in trouble because people can still see it. Lots of small, subtle. I'll give you another quick example. I remember some of think of as diverse a range of examples as a can be, but I remember going in a, a Young Defenders Institute years ago and they locked me in the cell. I turned up there, I was going to meet the visitor. And they put me in the cell. Now, nobody had ever said to them, maybe that isn't the most acceptable thing to do with visitors, but they take your phone off you, your watch, any other device, which is absolutely fine. But they locked me in the cell until, until the governor was ready to meet me. So I was there for 15 minutes. Now, I've never been in a cell before. So at first it was funny, and then it was like, well, actually, this isn't a particularly pleasurable experience for me. And when the governor came to see me, he, we were making small talk. He said, uh, so have you been here before? I said, never. So what's your first impressions of the place? So before I thought I could mention the cell, but I'll do it in a more subtle way. I said, I think you're a racist organisation. But immediately he's on the back foot. He's immediately reacting. What have you seen? What's happened? What do I need to do? How do I crack down on it? I said, no, don't worry. I've not seen anything. I've not seen a racist incident. I said, but because you've had me in that cell for 15 minutes and I've had nothing to do, to fill the time, I've read every notice that's up on the notice board. And in that waiting room, in that waiting cell there, you've got four different notices to tell me how to spot and report a racist incident should I see one occur on my visit to your site. So in the back of my mind, I'm anticipating you've probably got a racist problem here because you've got four separate notices in one small cell area. His answer was, he said, no, it was an incident about six years ago. We cracked down hard on it. We've never had a problem since. So my response was, why are you still advertising your problems then? Because nowhere in that area had you told me the non-negotiable behaviours that I could expect to see. 
what you did was told me all the behaviours you hoped I didn't observe and how to react should they happen. But you didn't tell me what I could catch people in. You didn't tell me you were changing people's lives, rehabilitating offenders, protecting the community. There was no sense of purpose. It was all just about reactiveness, which yeah. again is a window to the culture that you're in there. Such simple things, but have such a, a profound impact and, and some great, great stories there that you share, some great examples. We're almost out of time. Thank you very much for your contributions today and for taking the time to talk to us. Before you go, I wanted to just steal an item from the High Performance podcast and do a, a very quick fire round with you. So you've answered a couple of the questions as we've gone along. So I'm, I'm down to only a couple anyway. First, what I'd like to know is if you could pick anyone to be a guest on your podcast, who would it be and why? That's a brilliant one because you, the, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna be really deeply personal here. Please do. Choose my dad. Choose my dad. Give you some context. I've mentioned him in the introduction, but I'll give you some context. My dad's uh, got advanced dementia these days, and uh, he was diagnosed about ten years ago, and the, so the last ten years have been incredibly difficult. Seeing so he's still with us, and we're blessed for that. But he doesn't recognise us now or anything like that. And my right. mum and my sister care for him. The idea of having my dad as a guest, as my dad, the person he was, and being able to speak to him one last time and speak to him around some of these principles and get him to share them, that'd be the one that uh, yeah. I'd choose uh, if I could. That's really powerful. I think this is probably going to be the same answer. This is to use your own question against you. Who was it that believed in you before you believed in you? I won't quote my dad then. Oh, okay. my mum. So they did, but there's another one that is equally profound for me. I ended up getting a scholarship to a grammar school in Manchester, near where I grew up. I felt incredibly privileged to do that, and my parents were very mindful that I was being given a scholarship to a really good school. And I was a fish out of water when I got there. I sort of struggled to settle. My default reaction to that was to be quite quite a difficult character, so, um, which is my way of saying I was a bit of a d But I ended up getting myself into a little bit of trouble. And I, at one stage, they were going to expel me to, uh, from the school for fighting. And it was a pattern of behaviour, getting into scrapes like that. But on this one occasion, they were going to expel me for fighting. And I was really aware that I'd sort of thrown away a golden opportunity that I'd been lucky enough to get. What had happened, this is where sometimes you have to thank your, uh, your better angels, was that I was an altar boy in a Catholic church near where I grew up. And I suppose that image was incongruous for being a sort of a, a harem scarum character that was going into school and fighting, but then on a Sunday serving at mass. And uh, I never mentioned it to anybody. It wasn't, and nobody from my school ever came. And then this about three weeks before this particular incident, teacher from my school came into mass while I was serving on the altar and I can still remember the sheer confusion on his face of seeing this and he was obviously thinking I was a, I was a villain and yet there I was and the next day we went into school he asked me about it and he, he started asking about my family and he knew I was from a good family and we were respectful and things like that so long story short, three weeks later, I get myself in this serious trouble where they're going to kick me out of school and they sent me home and suspended me while they were deciding what to do. And this one teacher, he's called Bernard Council, 
came round to my house and I was completely unexpected. He spoke to my parents and then he spoke to me and he basically said he was going to go back into school and speak up for me and suggest that they uh, don't expel me, that they suspend me on the understanding that he would take me under his wing. But he said, it was very clear, it was last chance to learn stuff. He said, that I, if I can persuade him of this and it happens again, I'm afraid I'm washing my hands of you. Now, there was no reason for him to do that. There was, no, there was nothing in it for him to put his own reputation on the line like that, but he did it. And that moment had quite a seminal impact because I'd, I'd seen how hurt my mum and dad were about my behaviour. Mm. I could sort of see the path that I was on my way heading down. And that was a seminal moment where, well, if this man believes in me when I don't even believe in me and thinks I've got more capability, well, I had a duty to sort of knuckle down and start behaving myself and committing myself. A very sort of end to that story about Mr. Council was that um, when I got my professorship back in 2010 from Manchester University, the local newspapers covered the event and I mentioned Mr. Council in that and, and spoke about the impact it had on my life. So I've been lucky enough that in the last 15 years, I've I meet him at least once a year and take him out. Oh, he's in his late 80s now. I meet him and, and, and he's on his own, he's widowed. But I take him out once a year just for something to eat and just to sit and chat and, and catch up with him. I'm not sure he necessarily knows it, but to me, that's my way of just trying to pay back a little bit of the debt that I feel I owe to him. So I'll tell you, man, called the Bernard Council is the one that did that. Brilliant. Those are two really powerful stories and answers to finish on. And I share your sentiment on teachers. If, if this period has taught me anything or shown me anything, the role that they do is, is just it's unbelievable. They, you know, I cannot speak highly enough of the role that teachers play in, in, in yeah, progressing lives, ultimately. Well, look, yeah. thank you very much indeed. You've given up lots of your time to, to support us with our Progressing Lives project. If I come back to your purpose, to make a positive difference. You've made a massively positive difference to through oh, Morgan Bond. You're welcome in our community in, in the time and, and support you've given us and the answers that you've, you've shared with us today. So thank you. Just before we sign off, how can people find you to learn more about you and, and obviously the, the great work that you're doing? So I've got a website called liquidthinker.com and there's a contact page there. So if anyone wants to get in touch if there's any questions that people might have for uh, being kind enough to listen to this or they want more information on some of the stuff we've spoken about. If they go to the website liquidthinker.com, drop me a line on the contact page. There's a lady that manages it for me. She'll pick it up and pass it on. I'll get back as soon as I can if I can help people. As I hope people have realised that speaks to my sense of purpose, so I'd be happy to do so. Fantastic. And I highly recommend the High Performance Podcast for anyone that wants to go on a journey of progression. It will certainly help them. It certainly helped me. Damien, once again, thank you very much for, for joining the podcast. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Amoria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. 
Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.